Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. Two quick pieces of business to get to before we get underway this week. First of all, congratulations to Lauren, who's our winner this week of a copy of Roy Parvin's new book, Yoga for the Inflexible Male. Now stay tuned, because at the end of the show, we're going to fill you in on details for this week's giveaway. Second thing, we're going to feature a listener voicemail in the second part of the show. This week, the honor of answering the question fell to Dr. Guy Leshsener. He's a consultant neurologist at London Bridge Hospital, the Cromwell Hospital, and within the Department of Neurology and Sleep Disorder Center at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospitals. He's also the clinical lead for the Sleep Disorder Center at Guy's Hospital, one of Europe's largest sleep units. Now, if you want to send a question for our team, there are a few ways to do that, but the easiest, if you're in North America, is to simply call us at one 866 8 snooze and leave us your question. It's one 8 snooze Now, on to this week's special guest. Wendy Troxell is a senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation and an adjunct faculty member in psychiatry and psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist. She's also internationally recognized for her work on sleep in couples, how sleep affects health and the global economy, and how social environments, including public policy, affect sleep. All those qualifications explain why you've probably seen her on every major media outlet in the world, including her TED Talk. So, let's get to it, Dr. Wendy Troxell. I'm so excited to get the chance to talk to you because there are so many people out there in the sleep world who people are paying attention to and uh, especially people like you. And and so it's always a treat to be able to bring someone, uh, you know, into the show who is getting some traction. I want to talk to you about one particular thing that you're getting traction for. I'll get to it in a second. But first... I've got to give you the same first question that every guest on the snooze button gets, which is this. How did you sleep last night? <laughs> well, thanks for having me. And let me think about how I slept last night. Actually, I slept quite well. I did uh, sort of my usual, um, got a early to bed around 10 p.m. And uh, my dog actually woke me up at 6 a.m. And uh, great quality sleep. So I'm, I'm quite satisfied. Well, if if you've got a dog that is a dependable alarm clock, then I'm very excited for you. Um, <laughs> listen, for pe- for people who have been keeping an eye on on you and people like you on, for example, social media, um, there is a term that's been getting thrown around, um, and and what's fascinating to me is that the term sleep divorce seems to be getting traction right now and everybody's talking about it except for you <laughs> this is something you've been batting around for ages it's almost like one of those bands that you know a rock band when they put out their seventh album somebody calls them an overnight success is it frustrating for someone who's been talking about sleep divorces for so long that it's taken this long for the rest of the world to catch up and start talking about it as well well the reality is i still don't talk about quote unquote sleep divorce because I absolutely loathe that term. I find it so judgmental. Oh, and thank God. So do I. <laughs> so so actually I'm still not talking about 
you know, fake divorce, except when people forced me to, 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 to name the, 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 the word that should, shall not be said. Um, but yes, I have- Okay, wait, then here, let me do this. Let me, let me, let me reverse course. Let me get here. <laughs> the second question, let's pretend it started this way. Wendy, you know that annoying term that other people use, sleep divorce? Can we come up with a better name for that? Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, yes. Well, I have actually been thinking about um, a less judgmental, um, you know, more, you know, accepting term to acknowledge that couples make all sorts of decisions around how to sleep. And really what matters for couples is prioritizing sleep within their relationship. So we've banded about a number of terms. Actually, there's a journalist, um, uh, Jessica Goldstein, who came up with the idea of um, unconscious uncoupling, which I kind of thought was cute. Um, I've had other terms (laughs) such as, you know, um, uh, solo sleeping, or uh, as I described in a TED talk that I just did, uh, that really is about the process of forging a sleep alliance or partnership with your partner so that you can find a strategy, whether it means sleeping together or apart, that works best for you as a couple. And really finding a strategy that's going to honor both of your needs, allow both of you to get the sleep you need and not let either one feel abandoned or hurt or rejected. And that's really uh, where communication plays a big role. I had been spending a long time trying to figure out where all of the negative stigma, other than the name, yeah. um, uh, of, of couples sleeping separately had come from. And I had come up with two answers, and maybe there's there maybe you can help me f- figure out if there's another one. Because my initial response was, well, it probably makes us all either think of Fred and Wilma Flintstone or uh, Rob and Laura Petrie. And it makes us um, perhaps feel old because it's a throwback to television shows that were being made 60 years ago. And maybe that's part of the stigma. But then I started thinking, no, maybe people associate sleeping separately with, you know what? That's what you do when you've just had a fight. Somebody Mm. grabs a blanket and they go and sleep on the couch Mm. for the night. Is that am I in the ballpark? Is that why we feel so negatively about why there's so much baggage with this idea? Yeah, I mean, I, there's. I, I think that this is really speculative at this point. Uh, but that's your idea that when it's done in a reactive manner, I mean, that's actually a, an, an idea I haven't really thought about too much, but I think it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I think the other piece of it, which is really important, which you alluded to, although I don't know, who are the Petries? I've never heard that name before. I thought you were going to say, um, you know, from I Love Lucy, you know, um, uh, See, I'm so ancient compared to you, I think. And so I'm thinking of the Dick Van Dyke show oh, okay. um, right. and Dick Van Dyke. And yeah, because okay. he was married to Mary Tyler Moore on on the series. And yeah, they slept in separate beds. Uh, OK, so that, that's good for now. Now I've gotten, you know, um, uh, uh, my uh, cultural update here. But I mean, the truth is that uh, we do have lots of examples from pop culture, uh, you know, throughout history that have, um, you know, shaped you know, how we feel about sleeping together or apart. And the interesting thing is that the stigma that we now associate with sleeping apart, you know, it was, you know, really, it was quite different. It was the opposite, you know, 100 years ago. I mean, in the, you know, think about like the Netflix show The Crown or um, in the Victorian era, you know, sleeping apart 
heart was really sort of the value and the, for those who could afford to have separate bedrooms. And sleeping together was really, um, you know, something for the lower class. It was thought to be associated with disease um, and, you know, all these bad things that you could catch from your partner um, uh, in terms of infectious illnesses. And so really our sort of beliefs about you know, whether couples, quote-unquote, should sleep together or apart, have changed drastically, and they've gone up and down and changed back and forth across the ages, um, sort of according to sort of the cultural norms of the day. And so uh, sort of the best sort of historical data that we have that suggests that the shift towards um, a stigma, you know, this belief that, you know, the marital bed, you know, is really... um, you know, this very important thing and where we started to equate both the literal meaning of sleeping together with the figurative meaning, um, that seemed to have happened around the sexual revolution. And it might have been in part like a black backlash uh, or reaction to, you know, I don't want to be like my, you know, old stodgy parents um, or the images we were seeing on TV, uh, like the Dick Van Dyke show or I Love Lucy, um, where, you know, couples were sleeping apart. That might have been sort of the, you know, old form and part of the sexual revolution was this idea that we were, you know, so different from our parents um, and really embracing uh, intimacy and closeness as if, again, the literal and figurative meaning of sleeping together are the same thing, which, of course, they don't have to be. I mean, the Beach Boys said it best. Wouldn't it be nice if we could say goodnight and stay together? I mean, that's what year was that song out? 1967 or something like that, that the Beach Boys sang that line. So the timeline matches perfectly. Um, So for people who are, I mean, I've talked uh, to a number of people about this subject and a couple of times on this show as well. Um, But I, I particularly wanted to get your take on it, particularly because you've been studying this forever. So because, I mean, I think the first study that I found into sleeping separately with your name on it is either from 2007 or from 2005. You'll, you'll be able to spot that one immediately and correct me. Um, but it, it's, can, can you delve into a little bit the science behind why this is a good idea for people who are sitting there thinking, Ah, oh, whatever, whatever's going on in our sleep, I can handle it. And me and my wife will navigate through it. What's the science tell us? Sure. Well, I mean, just to clarify, I mean, my work, you know, which began, you know, in the early 2000s, um, uh, after I finished my PhD, I was really interested in kind of why relationships matter for our health. And so I became interested in sleep because sleep is this critically important health behavior. And it's something that couples do together but very few people in the sleep world were studying sleep at the couple level. And so, to be honest with you, you know, questions concerning whether couples should sleep together or apart has really been a tangential part of my work, but it's an important um, sort of aspect that I think has arisen and I get asked to comment on, to comment on quite a bit because my work in general has specifically focused on understanding sleep as it occurs, you know, in the real world, which is for many people within a couple situation. And by not studying, by not bringing a systematic study of sleep in the context that it actually occurs in couples, then that's how these ideas and these beliefs and myths about sleep and what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing, that's how they really, I think, become kind of instantiated and sort of reified as if they're truth. But 
really we don't have necessarily the scientific study of it. So my work really is focused on understanding the importance of sleep in the context of our closest relationships, how does sleep matter for the quality of our relationships, and how does uh, the quality of our relationships impact our sleep? Because we all know um, that when you're poorly slept, uh, you don't behave as well in your closest relationships. It's actually your partner that kind of really bears the brunt of it often. But we also know that, say, you have a conflict with your partner, you're feeling, you know, angry and anxious and upset with your partner, it's also likely to manifest in your sleep. So there are these sort of obvious connections that no one was really studying, and that was really sort of, that's the primary focus of my work. And, and again, within that, you know, we've learned that because nobody had been systematically studying sleep as it naturally occurs within couples, all these beliefs and myths were coming out, and we really needed the science to be able to show, well, here's what we know. You know, when you're poorly slept, you're not as good a partner. And, you know, and, and the quality of your relationship can also affect your sleep. So there's this important dynamic about th that we have been ignoring, that, you know, sleep occupies roughly one-third of our lives. And yet, you know, and it's like, that's like a major part of our coupled existence, and we were completely ignoring it. So really what my work does um, is try to sort of elevate the conversation about the importance of sleep to consider how important it is in the context of your relationship. And then within that, to allow couples to start having more open and honest communication about, well, if the goal, because it serves our relationship, is to sleep better, how do we go about doing that? And what is the science that says, you know, you know, is there any science saying that one way is better than the other? And, you know, the truth is the science is mixed uh, when it comes to, you know, um, sort of objective measures of sleep when sharing a bed versus subjective measures of sleep when you share a bed. I could talk about that a little bit too, if you like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the only thing I can throw into this is some of the context that informs the experience we're in the middle of in our house because I guess it's about it's got it's got to be about eight months ago now I think that I went to the sleep lab at Sunnybrook Hospital here in Toronto okay. and did my very first sleep test and they told me that among other things I have a periodic limb movement index of eighty two huh. um yeah wow. and and. It's, it's interesting. Every time I throw that number at someone who does what you do for a living, the range of responses and reactions I've gotten, it's always why I just throw out the number and then I just sit back in the chair for a second <laughs> to let that germinate. You're um, moving around a lot. Because that's, I mean, that's ridiculously high. Yeah. yeah. You are yeah. moving around um, a lot and, and for those yeah. if if this is your first episode of the snooze button, uh, let me translate for you. It means that about every 40 seconds all night long, I kick sometimes quite violently, and my wife had the bruises on her shins to show for it because every once in a while she would fall to somewhere within my range of motion and she'd get a kick in the leg, and then I'd get an elbow in the ribs, and we'd carry on from there. Um, so we are, I guess, a week and a half. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be two weeks this weekend uh, where we are experimenting with sleeping in different rooms, and... Other than the not getting kicked in the middle of the night, the only other 
data that we have to back up that it's a positive experience for my wife is that suddenly, and and we can get into a whole discussion of orthosomnia, but, um, you know, she wears a Fitbit to bed at night and her Fitbit is telling her that since we started sleeping separately, she's getting eight to nine hours a night of some of the best quality sleep she's ever had. And wow. so for us and the fact that she wakes up refreshed and she feels good and she's not angry at me for the latest bruise that she got on her shins, it's working like magic for us. Right. And so that's exactly sort of my point about, you know, there's lots of reasons why for some couples sleeping together might not be the best choice. In her case, it was, you know, not a downright safety issue, but, uh, you know, she, she was getting bruises and certainly her sleep quality was suffering. So there's got to be room to have the discussion about, wow, would sleeping apart protect both of our needs for sleep and for limbs from getting bruised. And by the way, I see this in lots <laughs> of, uh, you know, different scenarios. I mean, some of the uh, uh, populations that, that I work with um, include uh, veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and severe and sometimes violent dreams. And I, I've also worked with their partners, and sometimes the conversation has to, for safety reasons, be about, you know, until we get the nightmares handled, um, it's unsafe for you all to be sleeping together because he can thrash, lash out. Um, so, again, it could be a safety issue. It could be a matter of uh, just the disruption in, in sleep that your wife now has data to show is, is already improving uh, when she sleeps apart. And, again, sleeping better can have a direct impact on how you feel and behave with your partner. So there can be this virtuous cycle by choosing to prioritize sleep in whatever fashion or whatever arrangement works best for you all, provided that there's healthy and honest communication about it. It wasn't that she just one night said, you know, to hell with you, I'm getting out of bed, you know, deal with it. I imagine, I hope that you guys had a conversation once you got this diagnosis, that you have a severe and significant sleep disorder that is, and I hope you're getting treated for it, but it's significantly affecting your sleep and also the sleep of the person you, you know, share a bed with because, the symptom is, you know, kicking your legs and, you know, she's, whether or not she's actually physically um, impacted by it, you know, there's a lot of displacement um, in the shared bed when somebody is, you know, thrashing about. So that's, that's exactly, um, you know, one of the major reasons uh, why couples uh, choose, um, sometimes out of desperation to sleep apart is because of a sleep disorder. I mean, the thing that I think really distinguishes whether it ends up being sort of a relationship and sort of health-promoting strategy versus potentially one that could hurt the relationship is whether there's communication around it. If one partner just, you know, abandons the bed out of complete exasperation, for instance, because your partner is a snorer um, and there's no discussion around it, well, a lot of our feelings about the marital bed or about the shared bed really have to do with kind of that it is sort of a protected space and it's a place that we go to for safety and security and connection with our partner. So I don't think couples can take this lightly and they really can't. There has to be discussion around, you know, this is not about me rejecting you, my partner. It's really about that this arrangement isn't working, but you know, we still, you know, have our needs for intimacy. We need to be close, all of these things and really checking in with each other so that, the feeling isn't one of rejection, which again, I see that happen quite a bit too when the one partner just leaves the bed out of complete exasperation because they just can't take it anymore. 
Uh, so it's really about how the process is handled and whether it's transparent um, and as mutual a decision as possible. So you seized upon a phrase that I want to, it's a rabbit hole I want to go down for a second because you talked about our need for intimacy and closeness as a couple. And I wonder if, as you've been looking into this subject, if, if, is there an easy way to navigate that part of it? Because the, one of the chief complaints I hear from people as I float this idea out just you know just for the heck of talking about it is people worry about whether or not the intimacy will suffer whether or not you know their sex life is going to completely go down the tubes Um, what are you finding as you learn more about the way couples are responding to this well yeah I mean I think that is a a big concern but I mean I think that there's really sort of clear and obvious practical strategies that can, you know, be an easy solution um, so that, you know, intimacy does not have to take a hit. For instance, I mean, again, this gets back to this idea that, you know, uh, you know, that sex only happens when we're sleeping together, that, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, there's an opportunity for, you know, sex and intimacy and for different people, it doesn't necessarily have, have to happen, you know, either right at bedtime or, you know, it, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, in fact, for some people, based on circadian rhythms or just uh, preferences and sleep schedules and wake schedules and, you know, work schedules, you know, there may be other times of, of day that are preferable for intimacy to begin with. So, again, we don't have this idea that, you know, sex only happens when we're going to sleep is sort of a misconception to begin with, and it might not be the best choice for some couples because, for instance, if you're more of a warning person, um, you may actually um, enjoy and be more interested in uh, sexual activity in the morning hours. But that said, some of the practical strategies, even if you're not sleeping together, this is why we sort of need to sort of disentangle this idea of the literal and figurative meaning of sleeping together uh, being the same thing. Um, You know, couples who choose to sleep apart for whatever reason, maybe it's because of a sleep disorder, maybe it's because of different sleep-like schedules, those circadian rhythms. What some couples do um, is that they, you know, they make, um, they may schedule time for intimacy before the one partner goes to bed or before um, separating to different rooms. Um, but again, it's, it may be more effortful. It may be more about like making it more of a choice. Um, and planful, which is not actually a bad thing, um, but it doesn't mean that simply sleeping apart means that uh, intimacy uh, will take a hit. And actually, to the contrary, what we have a great deal of data on is that, you know, when you're poorly slept, that can definitely um, take a hit on your sex life uh, because um, um, when you're not sleeping well, you have less interest in sexual activity. It affects male sexual hormones and all sorts of other things that we know are directly um, uh, related to, you know, sex drive and sexual satisfaction. And so once you get past the stigma and, and the baggage of, of sleeping separately, you could actually, I mean, I think of couples who've been together for a long time, you know, which probably several of the, the people that are having sleep apnea, for example, or whatever other sleep disorders, I mean, those tend to creep up 
for a lot of people as they get older. And so if they, as they get older and they're developing more sleep issues are also in the later stages of their relationships, maybe this is a way for them to think about reigniting a spark and, and bringing the romance back into that part of their relationship because it's not just an automatic thing where you roll over in bed and there's your partner right next to you. Exactly. And think about the, you know, the, the, the partner um, of the sleep apneic. And I'm going to call her a female, though I will say that, you know, both men and women uh, can have sleep apnea and be snorers. It's just men are statistically more likely um, uh, uh, to just some level of sleep disorder breathing. But a woman who has for years and years lied next to a man who, you know, wakes her up, you know, throughout the night with, you know, loud honking, you know, you know, ear crushing snores <laughs> is not exactly primed for sex, you know, before bed, but she has this conditioned response. So, oh my God, here we go again. You know, yet another night of being, you know, tortured by this horrendous sound. Now, again, my first advice is always take your partner to the sleep doctor and try to get diagnosed and treated for the apnea. But furthermore, once the you know condition is, is treated, um, if sleeping apart, I think you're absolutely right. It can sort of break these old cycles of, you know, the here we go again, the both of us aren't sleeping well. And, you know, it could be actually an opportunity sort of to reignite a, a sex life. There's a joke in there somewhere about him, you know, snoring all night, then waking her up in the middle of the night for sex, and then four minutes later he's snoring again. But I won't even go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I mean, so I, I love that. I think the major thing with this, as as seems to be the case with so much related to getting better sleep just seems to be this idea of, you know, because it's all the things that people are resistant to about, for example, sleep hygiene, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is an overused term, but still a lot of the reasons why people, if you're having a problem with sleep hygiene, get over yourself and just do this and that and the other that you need to do Mm -hmm. because it will help. And it sounds like for this, that's kind of the same arena is this will work better probably just get over yourself and go try it and see what's happening. And I mean, the more, you know, we've, we've, there are celebrities out there. I'm, I'm like an, I'm not even B list. I'm like K list celebrity uh, or, or maybe L or M, but still, if there are people who are in the public eye who will step forward and go, yeah, you know what? We're trying this and actually it kind of works. Maybe that helps erase some of the stigma and carry some of the baggage away from it. Absolutely. And and I want to be clear that, to be honest with you, even though this is often credited to me, you know, I am not actually suggesting or prescribing um, any particular way for couples to sleep together. That's not my business. It's not your business. It is the couple business. All I am suggesting is that we need to start focusing on that critical third of our lives, sleep, as being not only important for our physical health, our mental health, our functioning, um, our survival, but also critical for our relationship. So we spend a lot of time and money, uh, you know, we read self-help books on, you know, how do we improve our relationships? Um, we, you know, attend seminars, we, you know, watch exhaustive amounts of TV about, you know, healthy couples versus unhealthy couples. Um, but for, for the most, most people, we have been largely neglecting to consider the critical third of our lives, which can have a major impact on the quality of our relationship and the deeply intimate and important behavior that couples 
at some level have to negotiate together. So what my job is, what sort of I see my role is, again, not being prescriptive um, about how couples should or shouldn't sleep together, but rather elevating the importance of sleep so people start realizing, wow, it doesn't, not sleeping well isn't only affecting me, it's affecting the quality of my relationships. And that, therefore, it bears discussion and it bears importance. And it should be a conversation. It should be a priority within our relationship so that we can find strategies that work best for us rather than looking to the, you know, the social norms or the stigma that's out there. It's about really realizing what, how important this behavior is that is either shared or unshared, but still it's a major part of uh, your sort of coupled existence. Um, and yet, and so what are the strategies that we come to together as partners uh, to find a solution that works best for us? I love when I get to talk to ridiculously smart people about this subject because um, it's, it's endless. I mean, I, I get people like you on the line and I could talk to you for a week. So I uh, wonder if you've got a couple of minutes for me to take you down one other completely unrelated rabbit hole. Uh, sure. Of course. Because I hope I can follow you. Well, I know you can because I know uh, from keeping an eye on you on social media this week, this is something that's right in your wheelhouse. And now that I've said it, you know exactly where I'm going to go. It has to do with a completely different relationship that's happening under our same roof, just not in the same bedroom. Um, Talk to me for a second about where we are with pushing our children's school start times later. I know that California got their act together, sort of, uh, although they're phasing in a delay over the course of three years, which is going to be an eternity. Um, But where are we with that right now? And what can parents who have already bought into the science and understand why this needs to happen, what can we do to push this thing forward? Yeah, so actually just this week, um, some national data was uh, released concerning uh, the average average high school start times across the U.S., Um, and this is an update from some data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that was released a few years ago. And sadly, um, uh, if anything, uh, the average high school start time, if anything, has been inching a little earlier. It's now the average school start time across the U.S. Um, is about 8 a.m. Now, there's certainly some states um, that are even earlier than 8 a.m. Um, and, you know, when the CDC published their results, um, the start time was about 8.04 a.m. So not a massive difference, but a difference and going in the wrong direction, despite the fact that major medical organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Resource Association, and lots of others have all recommended that middle and high schools start no earlier than 8.30 a.m. because of the robust science showing that, A, adolescents are not getting enough sleep, they are chronically sleep-deprived population, and because biologically they are predisposed to stay awake later and sleep in later. So they are exactly the population who should not be going to school the earliest as they are. Um, that said, uh, you know, the, move, the motion and uh, the movement around um, delaying school start times and heeding the science is, you know, growing in popularity across the country. And that's exciting to see. As you mentioned, there was the landmark legislation in California, uh, which as of the year 2022, um, 
the will mandates that uh, middle schools across the state of California will start no earlier than 8 a.m. and high schools will start no earlier than 8.30 a.m., again, consistent with the science. Um, and the fact that there is that delay, yes, I feel bad for the, the teenagers uh, over the next three years, but it is a massive undertaking. And I think that, um, you know, for schools to figure this one out, because, you know, the science is quite clear. It's the implementation that's challenging. And so I think that the fact that there is this time for that for them to for school districts to you know individually even though this is a state level mandate to figure out how are we going to make this work and adjust their schedules and not spring it on families or communities i think it's actually uh you know it, it, it was necessary to have that kind of lag um we're seeing similar uh, changes including um some uh, legislative activities across the country including in utah uh where they just passed a resolution it's not a mandate by any means but it is also a resolution uh, that uh, supports healthy school start times. Um, so it's, it's also interesting. This is not a red state or blue state issue. It's really uh, about um, the science. Um, and we're seeing it uh, in multiple districts around the country. And so I, I do quite a bit of speaking around the country about the science um, of adolescent sleep and how early school start times are har- harmful to them. And so, you know, I would say it's slow going. Still, the majority, vast majority of schools across the U.S., are inconsistent with best science and medical recommendations, and we are sending our kids to school way too early, and it's harming them. It would be really easy to keep Wendy on the phone for about another hour to talk about the science behind why this works, but um, I, I know you've got time stuff going on, so if you're listening right now and you want to learn more about the science, let me make a couple recommendations. First, go watch Wendy's TED Talk. Um, second of all... I would direct you to an episode of this show that we did a few months back with Dr. Linnell Schneeberg, uh, who is the director of the uh, sleep clinic at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and also an associate professor at Yale uh, School of Medicine, who that that was the first time that subject came up on this show. And it was on the eve of California passing the legislation to uh, change the school times there. It ha- the, the conversation with Dr. Schneeberg happened literally two or three days before California passed their legislation. So it's interesting listening back to that now as we were both wishing that California would do something about it and, and kind of urging them from a distance to do exactly that. But Wendy, I really appreciate the time uh, and the insights. And uh, it's, it's like I said, it's always a treat uh, to, to be able to talk about people for whom this isn't just something they know a lot about. It's a passion. So thank, thank you. you so much for making time for us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to get to talk about something that I am so passionate about. That's Wendy Troxell. Links to all of her stuff, including her TED Talks, will be in the show notes. Uh, And thanks to Wendy for making time for us. Uh, Fun conversation. Now, we get to this week's listener question and the answer here from Dr. Guy Leschziner. Again, if you've got a question for our team, the phone number, like this person used, 1-866-8-SNOOZE. Let's get to the question. Hi, news button. Um, the last three days in a row, I woke up feeling like I got pretty good sleep, but my Apple Watch says that I didn't get enough REM sleep. What should I do? Well, I know one person in the sleep world for whom trackers and things like that are very much a hot button right now. And so it is uh, with a certain degree of excitement that I welcome Dr. Guy Leschziner back on the show. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks, Neil. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Um, I, I saw this question. This was left on our voicemail. And in case you're new to the show, you can call us at one eight six six eight snooze, and you can leave a voicemail. And once a week, we're going to grab one of our sleep experts, and we're going to throw them a question for the voicemail. So this call comes in and. I thought of you immediately because uh, a lot of you in my Twitter feed right now has been you talking about trackers and orthosomnia and all of these things. So I thought Guy is the perfect person to answer this question. Well, I'm not sure whether to be complimented or insulted, but uh, thank you for Uh, so what do we tell this person? I mean, so they they feel great. Their Apple Watch says don't feel great and they're not getting enough REM sleep. So what do they do? Well, I think what they should do is put their Apple Watch in a very deep drawer and never see it again. Um, I, you know, I think that this is a really good illustration of people using gadgets and uh, to track their sleep when actually they're probably sleeping pretty well. They're having a refreshing night's sleep. But it's when the data that the sleep tracker generates um, gives you something to focus on that you then start worrying about it. And that really is the the basis of orthosomnia. I think we know that, uh, you know, generally speaking, trackers are good at telling you when you've got into bed and when you get out of bed. They're reasonably good at telling you how much sleep you've had. Um, although certainly for people with insomnia, if you wake up in the middle of the night, they're less good at uh, identifying brief periods of wake at night. Um, and by and large, uh, sleep trackers are not uh, well validated when it comes to differentiating the different stages of sleep. So the question that this person needs to ask themselves is why are they using a sleep tracker in the first place? If they're going to bed at roughly the same time and waking up at the same time and generally waking up feeling refreshed, ready for bed the following day, then actually they're probably getting enough sleep for them. If they are finding it difficult to get off to sleep or stay asleep uh, and feel bad the following day, then they have insomnia. But if they are actually waking up feeling extremely tired, despite going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time and not having difficulty to go to sleep, then it means that they've probably got sleep restriction. They're not giving themselves the opportunity to go off to sleep. I'm not sure that a sleep tracker in particular helps you in any of those scenarios. Um, and, And so people tend to get obsessed about the data that is generated when the data in itself may be incorrect. So let me give you my own example and tell me if when this, when I went through this, if I was on the wrong track or if perhaps I used the sleep tracker for what it's supposed to be used for. I mean, in my own case, I had, you know, my own perception of my sleep as being lousy. Um, and when I had my first wearable and we should probably throw in right out of the gate that yes, the data coming back from them is all flawed in some way, but if you're using a wearable, then at least it might be slightly better at picking up sleep versus wake than that thing that sits beside your pillow. If you have one that's on your phone and it's depending on you to thrash about to tell you whether or not you're awake or asleep. But in my case, I had my own perception of my sleep, but then when I got a Fitbit, uh, a wearable sleep tracker, 
it was telling me that even though I was in bed at eight o'clock, it wasn't picking up that I was asleep until midnight or 1230 sometimes. And it was seeing that there was a three and four hour discrepancy between going to bed and when it thought I was falling asleep. That led me to say, okay, I need to go to a sleep lab now. If that's the application, if I'm just, if the data that I'm picking up makes me think I need to go and see a professional, is that a better way of using it or did I still miss the boat? No, I think I think that is a better way of using it. But I guess that what I would say is you probably didn't need the fitness tracker in the first place. If you were getting into bed at eight o'clock and feeling that you were spending 10, 11 hours in bed at night, fast asleep, yet you are still waking up feeling completely unrefreshed and shattered, then that in itself should have taken you to uh, a sleep doctor in the first place. Uh, I, I think in, in, in that context, uh, a sleep tracker certainly does not have any harmful consequences. Um, one could argue whether or not you needed to shell out hundreds of dollars in order to identify an issue with your sleep. I think the bigger issue is when people are using fallacious data to make assumptions about their sleep, particularly if it's a question of uh, insomnia, because then people tend to get more and more obsessed about the data that they're fitness tracker, their sleep tracker is pushing out. And that can actually make the situation worse rather than better. So so I'm not saying that a sleep tracker is bad for everyone. I'm saying that it's particularly bad for people who have a tendency towards insomnia. It may provide from it may provide some useful data for other categories of individuals. But I'm not sure that that data is any more worthwhile than your own experience of sleep. That is an incredibly helpful answer, I'm sure, for all kinds of people. And it's exactly why I knew you were the right person to talk to this week. Uh, Guy, thank you for making room for us. I know you're halfway around the world and and doing things all over the planet right now. So uh, the fact that you had a few minutes to spare for us tonight is uh, is much appreciated. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. There you go, Dr. Guy Leschziner, and thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. You can leave your question by voicemail at one 866 You can send it by email to asktheexperts at thesnoozebutton.com, or you can go to our SpeakPipe page. Uh, SpeakPipe page. Wow, that's a lot to say. All the details are at thesnoozebutton.com, including ways you can support the show, either with reviews or a variety of other options. But the easiest thing you can do if you like what you hear, is to let somebody know about us. Find us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all with the handle Get Your Snooze On. That's also the easiest place to find out about our latest set of giveaways. So you can just head to our website under the link that says Contests. Meantime, thanks for listening. And hey, get some sleep, would you? Would you?